Welcome to Made Simple, a podcast about media, technology, and their effects on society. What do we do here? Uh, we try to uncover and communicate uh, complex phenomena that have to do indeed with media and technology in a simple manner. And in order to do this, we chat with um, experts, uh, scientists, and scholars. My name is Giulia Ranzini. And my name is Andrew Casas. So this is our second episode. And in order to change track completely from uh, COVID, we want to talk about Afghanistan. Now, since the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan and seemingly the Taliban's are taking over again, uh, this topic has been in the news a lot and in the media a lot. Yeah, so Julie and I started thinking, uh, you know, can we say something about media and technology in Afghanistan that hasn't really been covered that much in the media? And we came up with a couple of uh, people that we could interview that would, you know, reveal new yet very, very interesting information about this topic. So the first interview that we have today for you uh, is kind of looking at the past and it focuses on U.S. politics. And it thinks about the effects that the U.S. intervention in Afghanistan has had on U.S. politics and it focuses on right-wing radicalization. Um, and then the second interview also focuses on Afghanistan and social media and it's kind of looking at the future. So we have a discussion with an expert on social media and authoritarian regimes about what's going to happen social media-wise moving forward in Afghanistan. So will the Taliban you know, have a complete open internet? Will they suspend or shut down particular parts of the internet? And how will social media companies react to Taliban uh, and Taliban-sponsored content? Are they going to you know, remove Taliban accounts from their social media platforms? Uh, and you know how are they going to do that and the level of transparency that they are going to put forward when doing that. The first interview uh, is with uh, Richard McAlexander. He's a postdoctoral fellow at the Perry World House at the University of Pennsylvania. Hi, let me say welcome to uh, Richard McAlexander. Uh, Richard, would you mind introducing yourself? Uh, tell us a little bit about you know, who you are and the kind of research that you do. Sure. Uh, yep. My name is Richard McAlexander. I am a postdoctoral fellow at the Perry World House at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm a political scientist by training. I received my PhD last year uh, in political science, the focus in international relations from Columbia University. Uh, a large part of my research is actually on British imperialism, decolonization, and resistance to empires. Um, and now I am uh, engaging in a line of research um, looking at the decline of a different empire in the U.S. empire. Nice. That sounds uh, all really cool. Um, so basically, in this episode of the podcast, we, uh, we, we had this idea that we wanted to focus on Afghanistan, a topic that, you know, of course, has been very salient in the news, especially since the, the Taliban uh, took over a few weeks ago. And uh, we wanted to talk about Afghanistan uh, from the lenses of this podcast, right, which is focused on, on media, technology, and, and the effects that changes in media and technology have, have on society. And as, uh, as we were thinking about potential angles to unpack, uh, I, I came across, uh, you know, your ongoing research uh, from you and, and your colleagues. And I thought it was really interesting and that it uncovered a, a very interesting yet often less salient angle of, of this story which is basically the, the effect that you know, foreign military interventions can have at home. 
And just uh, to give a sneak peek to our listeners and to help contextualize this interview. So what Richard and his colleagues explore in, uh, in this research is the, the relationship between military foreign casualties in a particular region of the US with political radicalization in that same region. And, and they specifically focus on uh, support for the far right. And one of the many interesting things about this research uh, is really the way they, they measure support for the far right uh, in, in particular areas. Uh, and, and they do so by looking at the, the number of videos that have been posted from that area to the social media platform Parlor, which uh, is known as, as an extremely conservative uh, platform. But, uh, you know, enough uh, from me. I would like to hear now uh, more about this fantastic research uh, uh, from, from you, Richard. So basically, the, the first question that I had is, what, in, what, what inspired you basically to look at this relationship between military uh, casualties abroad with political radicalization at home? Sure, thank you. Um, the, the way this came about was, so one, my two co-authors and colleagues on this are Mike Rubin, who's at University of Connecticut, and Rob Williams, who's at uh, Washington University of St. Louis, and they're both political scientists. Um, and this started out, so the parlor data was leaked, so to speak. It, um, it wasn't hacked because this, uh, the way the data was collected was not really nefarious and there wasn't a lot of work to be done. It was just very poor security. Um, so all, all this data was leaked and I was just, we were all talking, you know, how can we use this in a way, like what, this is, seems like a really incredible um, resource and we want to figure out ways that we could actually use this for uh, some sort of social science inquiry, given that it's very granular. So what's really unique about this data and what you don't have in other types of social media is that uh, like, you know, a lot of people do uh, work you know, on Twitter or Facebook is that a lot of the activity is geolocated. So we have the precise latitude and longitude of you know, if a video was uploaded to Parler, where that user was when they uploaded that video. The other thing is that we don't have to do any ideological sifting, meaning we don't have to view a, a text or read a video to know that this is part of a broader right-wing radicalization network because that's what Parler is designed to do. In the same way, if somebody is on Tinder, they're probably looking for a date. <laughs> uh, like that's the whole purpose of it. And so we basically, one of the core assumptions of our research, which we think is fairly well justified, is that if somebody's participating in Parlor, even if they're sharing recipes or you know some mundane things, um, or you know what your favorite episode of a TV show is that's not on Fox News, um, that that's engaging in right wing radicalization. And given what we know from the Parlor app itself and the site is that's a fairly safe assumption to make. Nice, uh, yeah, and thank you for also giving us an overview of what, you know what Parlor is, which is uh, probably a less known social media platform compared to Instagram, Twitter, and and, and Facebook. Um, and so I wanted uh, to know, you know, um, I wanted to ask you about what are kind of the key takeaways of of the of this research that you did. Uh, maybe even just a, a short overview of what the research design or what's the data that you leverage um, in this research and also what, what are the key findings? So the main, the key finding is that 
So our dependent variable, the thing we're trying to explain is the number of parlor video uploads in a given area. Um, so that ranges from zero, we log it basically because it's, uh, there's a lot of areas with a high number of uploads. Um, we use videos because there's a, they're much more manageable. Uh, we have the metadata on the videos and we actually have the content of the videos, but there's only about 60,000 of them. If you were to do text, the problem with doing text in with social media is that you have way too much of it. And I don't know about you, but most of what I've tweeted is complete nonsense. <laughs> uh, so you have to sift through these things to get at something relevant. Uh, so that's what we're, that's, that's our main dependent variable, what we're trying to explain. And we think this is a pretty accurate measure of right-wing radicalization. And then for independent variable, what we do is we look, we take the list of the, the list from uh, iCasualties, which is a website that tracks fatalities uh, of US service members in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that includes information on the service member's hometown. So what we do is we extract the hometown, we extract uh, the date of the casualty, and then we know the fatality, and then we match that to the latitude and longitude through an official list of, basically it's an official US government list of every entity in the US with the corresponding latitude and longitude. And then the next step is once we, so we have the latitude and longitude for the videos and the latitude and longitude of a hometown is we need some way of aggregating them up to include covariates and to account for all sorts of other things. Uh, and we do that at the county level. And then in the US, there's about 3000 counties. Um, and we also do it at the census tract level, which nests completely within counties. And there's about 70,000 of them, um, which means we're getting like really granular units of analysis. Uh, to, we're comparing things that are really geographically close to each other. Um, so a, a town, uh, you know, I, I don't know, I mean, from New Jersey, there's a lot of, you know, rich towns really close to poor towns, right? They're not that geographically distant, uh, especially, you know, in a city like Philadelphia, it's, you know, you cross the street and you're in a different, different, uh, you know, wealth or tax bracket. And we're comparing places that are really close to each other. And I think that's where a lot of the the leverage comes from and, and the power of the research design that we adopt. Nice, that's beautiful. Yeah, it's, um, I find it like surprising, right? That you can match these different variables at the very, very granular level. And I, and I think that's where the, the beauty of this research also, also, also lies. Um, one of the, the other things, uh, the other things that I wanted to ask is, um, could you help us flash out a little bit you know, why is this relationship happening? So basically, how do we go uh, from having some of our friends uh, who serve in the military dying abroad to, you know, radicalizing at, at home? How, what, you know, what are the different uh, mechanisms that you think are at place here? And what are the different, you know, potential explanations that you are considering? There's, so we, in the paper itself, we've kind of, uh, punted on the mechanisms. We haven't really explored them in depth. And in conversations with other scholars, we have uh, a large number of, but like uh, the mechanisms that people volunteer as possible explanations for this relationship are fairly consistent. So what we think is going on is that people are hurt. You know, people lose a loved one, a friend, uh, you know, a colleague, a classmate, whatever, they know, lose somebody they know in a war that they don't really, it's not, 
as clear that the war is purposeful or or, or for the right reason or uh, as popular in the broader imagination. Um, and they look for answers. And we think that these people who are hurt look for answers and the far right provides an answer. Um, I think there's, you know, there's really no di direct reason. We don't posture that, or we don't posit that uh, relations between war fatalities and right-wing radicalization, you know, transcends different time periods. We can very easily imagine that it's the opposite in different other contexts where people radicalize to the left. We, um, my hunch is that it's a failure of left organizing to tap into this group of people who have been hurt by US foreign policy and, uh, you know, kind of neglected them. And the far right has been very keen and also, you know, provides like a, intellectual ecosystem where the world kind of makes sense. And there's, you know, there's really bad people over in Iraq and Afghanistan, and there's really good people in the U.S. And then they provide a narrative for uh, assuaging and soothing some of the hurt that people are, are experiencing and that the U.S. government itself is not really, you know, tackling. Yeah, um, that makes a lot of sense. And, um, and what do you think the, the role of these more uh, less salient social media platforms is in this whole story? So would, uh, like thinking about counterfactuals, would, uh, in the absence of social media platforms like Parler or, uh, you know, or uh, certain Reddit channels, things like that, do you think, you know, this process would be possible? This radicalization process due to these casualties would be possible? Yeah. And yes. I know we're entering a bit into a sci-fi more <laughs> yeah. scenario, yeah. right? But uh, I, yeah. yeah, I was wondering about your take on this. Yeah, I, so I think Twitter has been actually better than Facebook at, in terms of purging uh, the far right. Um, so on Facebook, you know, if you look at the top 10 posts on any given day on Facebook, like the vast majority of them, it's like one's, you know, a health and wellness kind of anti-vax person and then like seven or eight are you know uh ben shapiro or you know a far-right radio host so facebook does the bare minimum before they're going to because they it's lucrative it's their business model in, in in one sense um but given that reddit's actually uh squashed some of these subreddits like the donald um and twitter has really uh they banned a lot of high profile you know, they kind of decapitated a lot of the higher, pro the, the, the far right movement in on Twitter, because there's really no like, you know, Twitter is like, it's like, the, it's a pyramid where there's a, 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 a small number of accounts tweet a lot and have a lot of followers. And then everybody else is, you know, the, the masses who, who don't have a large following. And if you cut the head off, then you don't really have the, that level of engagement. Facebook's a little different in that way. Um, so, you know, the good policies of some, or the policies that are good of some of these social media companies provide a venue for alternative uh, websites. Um, now, what's unique about Parler, it was, it was funded by the far right. It wasn't, you know, it was intended by, to be used for the far right. Um, it was funded on the cheap. That's why the security was so poor. But it's also, you know, so it's, it's in one sense, it's a social media company and a social media platform, but in other sense, it's a product of the strength of the far right in the US. Okay, so it's, it can also be seen as the, the output of some grassroots organization that, you know, it happened in this way that it ended up being, you know, 
creating this social media platform, but it could have been some sort of other other way of organizing it any, anyway, right? anyhow. Nice. Uh, actually, this is great. I, I really don't want to take more of your time. Uh, I really, you know, wanted, I, I thought it was really nice and worth to talk about, uh, you know, this, this uh, really interesting research. Uh, I think it brings this uh, new angle that is very interesting into the whole story. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. The second interview is with Alex Siegel. She's an assistant professor in political science at the University of Colorado. Hey, hello, Alex. How are you doing? Hi, good. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, uh, uh, I'm really looking forward uh, to talking to you about the topic of the day. Uh, before we get to it, would you mind, uh, we always ask our speakers uh, to introduce yourself, you know, uh, tell us a little bit of uh, who you are, where you're based, and, and the kind of research that you do. Great. Sure. So, hi, everyone. My name is Alex Siegel. I'm an assistant professor of political science at the University of Colorado at Boulder. I'm also a research affiliate of the Center for Social Media and Politics, and Andreo and I actually overlapped there back in the day. So that's how we initially um, know each other. And most of my research uses social media data to study political behavior in the Arab world. And I'm very interested in thinking about how authoritarian regimes control information in the digital age, as well as how various elite and mass actors use these tools to achieve their political goals. Nice. That's a really concise and, and a good introduction. Um, so uh, as, as you and I talked before, Alex, so the, the topic of this, uh, of this podcast today is about uh, Afghanistan. And we really want to try to understand, you know, we are always talking about changes in media, society, and, uh, and technology, basically, uh, in light of, you know, a topic that is salient uh, these days. Um, and, you know, as, as soon as uh, with the team of the podcast, we decided that we want to talk about Afghanistan and, you know, recent changes in media that affect the reality in there, your name came to mind, right? As, as someone, uh, you know, that has been doing research on social media on so, in so many, uh, you know, non-liberal democracies, uh, I thought that you would be able to, to help us understand what, what might be going on social media-wise moving forward in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, we, we know that social media is more and more relevant in the political world uh, these days. And so we kind of want to chat with you to see if you can give us some insights on social media wise, what might be happening in Afghanistan moving forward. Um, I know that you've been, you know, uh, paying attention to the news and about what's going on. So I thought that maybe a nice first question could be, if you could give us some, you know, what are the highlights uh, uh, from your perspective on, you know, the social media uh, future in Afghanistan? Sure. So I think that's a great question. And I think it's, you know, it's useful to start with sort of a brief overview of what's been going on. And I think there've been some really interesting dynamics at play since the U.S. withdrawal and subsequent takeover by the Taliban. And in particular, we've seen the Taliban launching sort of a social media offensive um, that's 
mainly been spread through um, first through Twitter in part because a lot of the accounts are banned on um, Facebook and WhatsApp, but then have been amplified on Facebook, WhatsApp and other platforms. And I think what's really interesting about seeing them use these tools strategically as they have come into power is that because when the Taliban initially came into power in Afghanistan back in 1996, they actually banned the internet and confiscated or destroyed um, TV sets, cameras, videotapes, that sort of thing. But later they came to see online tools as something they could use strategically to achieve their goals. And we've seen that with lots of similar organizations I think, around the world. And so they eventually launched an official website in the mid 2000s that you know, was published in multiple languages designed to reach both domestic and international audiences. Um, and they really developed a pretty well-established social media presence as well as different platforms um, ultimately emerge. So in the more recent period, we've seen them trying to use online tools to kind of get their message out to diverse audiences. And at the same time, we've seen prominent social media users in Afghanistan who have been critical of the Taliban in the past to be pretty fearful about what that means once the Taliban, you know, is coming to power. So there's been a lot of reporting on how people have been deleting their posts for fear of being targeted um, and whatnot. So that's just kind of a, a brief overview of the kind of situation we find ourselves in right now, right? This organization initially was opposed to these tools, but came to use them to achieve um, their kind of strategic aims. And we've been seeing that right now uh, with the recent takeover. Well, that's, yeah, that's, that's really interesting, right? Uh, this kind of transition that you mentioned. And, uh, and from your words, it seems that it's uh, some sort of the transition that different um, authoritarian regimes have gone through, no? Uh, so from, from uh, completely shutting down the internet to be more strategic about it, allowing the internet to exist and, and to think about how they can uh, use it for their own, uh, you know, to achieve their own goals. Are there like some countries, uh, you know, that kind of have established the model that, that the Afghanistan might, might, might kind of um, try to imitate moving forward? Yeah, so I think um, one of the th things that's really interesting about these dynamics is often the way this is reported on, it sounds as though authoritarian regimes have a lot of control over the internet, right? But in practice, there's a lot of variation there. And Jen Pan actually has a really great work on this where she talks about the fact that sort of China, which is kind of best known for its ability to control the internet and censor social media, its ability to do that rests on the fact that there is such dominance of domestic firms in China's market for internet content, right? People aren't reliant on Western platforms, they're using platforms that are actually based within China. And that's very much in contrast to a place like Afghanistan, or even what we see in the Gulf and in the Arab world, where the most popular platform are these Western social media platforms that ultimately regimes don't have particularly strong levers of control over. They can shut down the internet, as you mentioned, they can try to block access to 
these sites. And we often see that during periods of protest or periods of unrest, including actually in Afghanistan, the Taliban has uh, shut down internet services selectively in parts of Kabul and other areas where there have been protests. But as you say, that's a really blunt instrument and the sort of more fine grained control over the internet that we see say in the Chinese context is actually much harder to implement in these places where Western platforms are dominant. Oh, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's really interesting, right? Uh, from a public perspective, maybe because the media also kind of pushes that uh, narrative as well, right? It seems that these, these governments have full control of, you know, all what their citizens are doing and, and have like, an infinite, an infinite amount of resources uh, to control them to an extent, you know, that we cannot imagine. But yeah, reality seems to be quite, uh, quite different in that sense. And um, and what about? I know there is some some discussion about uh, the effectiveness of some of these policies, right? Uh, uh, so you are saying uh, selectively shutting down the, the internet on particular regions or selectively uh, trying to target some opposition leaders via social media, et cetera. Um, you know, it seems that they are just, you know, coming up with uh, potential tools, trying them out without, you know, never clearly knowing whether they are working or not. Uh, what do we know about which, which kind of uh, techniques, uh, social media techniques right, run by these authoritarian governments actually work versus uh, don't work? Yeah, that's a great, a great question. And I think, you know, starting with internet shutdowns, which are kind of the most blunt instrument, I think the person who has the um, some of the best research on this is Anita Godiz, and she's looked at this in the Syrian context, where she finds that internet shutdowns are often accompanied by these escalations of regime violence. And so it creates this dynamic where a regime is able to carry out more repressive behavior without citizen journalists being able to report on it. And, and in some cases, the violence is kind of hidden from view or the repression is hidden from view during the period of the internet shutdown. But I think there's also a lot of potential for backlash here, even as we saw just recently um, with you know Facebook and WhatsApp being down for a day, a platform like WhatsApp is so widely used in the developing world that most social and business communications get interrupted when, when either a platform like that is down or the entire internet is down. And so even people who may have been fairly apolitical, maybe kind of mobilized in backlash against a regime when they experience um, an internet shutdown. And I think the same is true with other forms of repression. So Jen Pan and I have work that shows when um, very well-known social media personalities in Saudi Arabia, um, including activists and dissidents, when they are arrested, and then subsequently released while their own opposition online decreases, the arrest actually draws a lot more attention to them and their causes. And so there's kind of this mobilization that occurs as a result of the repression. And I think this really speaks to um, a lot of great work in this space, including Molly Roberts's work, right, which really highlights that these more visible tactics for either censoring the internet or 
repressing online activists often draw attention to the very things that a regime might be seeking to hide. And so I think that brings us to a third really interesting set of tools, which are influence operations and disinformation operations. And I haven't seen much reporting on this yet in the Afghanistan context, but those are often much more subtle. And now that there are sort of our disinformation digital mercenaries for hire, even a regime like the Taliban, which might not have its own capabilities to carry out a disinformation operation on social media, could hire a, a company to do it for them. And so I think that's a kind of interesting and scary development in this space as well. Yeah, definitely, because that, that seems to be a model that, that came here to stay, right? As, a, as an authoritarian regime, if you want to kind of s sort of uh, survive in this uh, geopolitical online arena, you do need to have this kind of machinery um, that pushes your own discourse and, and, and you know, inform misinformation as needed into the environment, right? Kind of exactly. the, the, this Russian model from, you know, 2016 elections. Exactly. And actually, I have a recent paper with uh, Shelby Grossman and Renee DiResta where we talk about this specifically disinformation for hire or digital mercenary kind of model that is now becoming more popular. And one of the things that we sort of theorize about is that this also gives regimes plausible deniability, right? If they're not using their own capabilities and they're instead hiring an outside firm to conduct their disinformation operation, even if they're uncovered, the consequences for the regime itself are much less than they might've been historically. I'm looking forward to this one. <laughs> uh, okay, we've been talking a lot from, you know, uh, how the, the new government is, is going to, you know, use social media and the internet maybe more generally uh, for their own, you know, for their own purposes and goals. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion in the news, though, about, and as, as you were mentioning in the beginning, about the extent to which uh, Facebook, Twitter, you know, these uh, mainstream Western social media companies, uh, how they should be acting towards the Taliban. Should they be suspending their accounts uh, of, or the accounts of uh, people who you know, associate with them or who are known leaders of the, of the group? Uh, should they be censoring content that you know, sponsors the Taliban, etc.? Uh, what's your take on it? Uh, and, I, and I think I'm asking both from more of a normative perspective, do you think, you know, uh, is this something that we should, as you know, as a society, kind of aim for and do? And also from uh, an effectiveness perspective, is this actually helping, uh, you know, stop online discourses from radicalizing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is definitely a kind of one of the, as you mentioned, one of the big debates we're hearing a lot about, both in the news and on the academic side. I think and. I think one thing that's important to recognize here is that ultimately a platform like say Facebook, which has banned the Taliban from its platforms, um, at least officially, it is a US company, right? And so it winds up making policies that have to do or around this that have to do with what organizations 
are sanctioned or labeled as terrorist organizations under U.S. law. And so often when Facebook justifies, say, banning the Taliban, it's around the fact that the Taliban is designated as a terrorist organization under U.S. law. And so they're then banned under a dangerous organization policy. But the reason this becomes so complicated is in a lot of places we see organizations that might be on a U.S. list as a terrorist organization or some other kind of sanctioned organization that is actually in power, whether legitimately or not. And, and an example I'm thinking of where this comes up a lot is around Hamas and Hezbollah in Palestine and Lebanon, where often a lot of these actors are, you know, basically legitimately elected, but still remain on these lists you know, by the US government. And so when a platform then uses those designations, which of course are political themselves to make these decisions, they can have, I think sometimes unintended or maybe intended uh, consequences for the citizens in those environments, right? So, you know, it seems as though for example, Palestinians who are marginalized groups should be able to talk about political actors like those in Hamas online, but there's a lot of restrictions around that content and that content is frequently deleted and taken down by Facebook. So in trying to sanction an organization itself, there are often sort of downstream consequences and not even just for supporters of those organizations, I think, but just for people that want to have discourse about them online. And so I think it, you know, I understand where it comes from, but I think it can also kind of set up a dangerous precedent for the degree to which sort of US government policy can then control speech, especially of marginalized groups in other contexts. Yeah, and, and especially because, um, you know, we, so it's more or less clear what the, what the U.S. legislation is about this, right? So there are certain groups of people and groups in this list, and, you know, people should not have contact or support these groups and people, right? Uh, especially right. U.S. citizens. But uh, we don't really know how Facebook is translating these into suspensions of uh, accounts and, 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 and content in practice, right? Because it's kind of a big, a, a big black box and we don't really know how their algorithms are kind of uh, doing all, you know, putting all these legislation into practice um, in the sense that what, you know, to what extent is Facebook or some other social media company considering that a user is somewhat supporting a particular group or person in that list, right? And, uh, right. So, I mean, what I've heard, at least, because uh, I don't know, you know, it's different for each case, I think, how this is handled. But what I've heard, for example, in the Palestinian cases, it's about people expressing something that's sort of called praise for an organization or people who are on these designated lists, but how you measure and implement that in practice is really quite difficult. And so you can imagine there's a lot of non-harmful content that gets swept up in um, you know, the algorithms and sort of how that's implemented in practice. Yeah, that, yeah, definitely. I, I've, uh, I've been studying a little bit this, this kind of area uh, in relation to Iran, right, and, and uh, uh, how Twitter has been suspending 
uh, accounts that talk or engage about Iranian politics. And, you know, when doing research about this topic right before I started, uh, I, I read a lot about a lot of journalists getting their accounts shut down because they were reporting about particular organizations or, you know, some news that were involved, uh, that were about the, those particular groups, at least that, uh, that were in the list that they were banned, basically groups and people, right? So, yeah, I'm sure there is a lot of noise in these algorithms that they are, you know, setting up uh, and that, uh, yeah, it's just really hard to know exactly what's actually being implemented and done if, you know, social media companies are still this huge black box. Right, and I mean, in fairness to them, this is very hard to do. Yeah, no, it's, it's, even, it is, I, I totally agree, yeah. Even the, even the best experts and people with, you know, the most people's best interests in mind, there's not sort of a clear path forward for this, but having these, government designations dictate um, you know what gets censored and what doesn't I think is a bit of a slippery slope especially because we see authoritarian regimes trying to use this game to their own advantage well they where they will report to a platform we consider this dissident group to be an extremist organization or to be spreading disinformation and sort of using the language that's been developed in democratic contexts about platform regulation to control information and suppress dissent. And it's hard to have it both ways. You know, if some actors and governments are able to do that, but not others, it's sort of a question of what does that mean for these global platforms? Totally agree. Um, Alex, I really don't want to take more of your time. I think uh, uh, you've given us a lot of uh, really good information and, and food for thought. And yeah, uh, you totally, you know, this is exactly why I called you. I thought, uh, you know, that you have uh, really good information and thoughts on, on this topic and, and you totally deliver. So I really appreciate that. Well, thank you so much. And I'm looking forward to hearing more episodes of the podcast. I think it's a great initiative. Thank you so much. Bye. Talk to you soon. Bye. Once again, two super interesting interviews that we hope you enjoyed as much as we did. We look forward to bringing you our next episode of Made Simple Podcast, and we hope you keep listening. Yeah, thanks for listening and stay tuned. This Made Simple Podcast has been brought to you by the SimLab, the Communication Science Department and the Institute for Societal Resilience at the Freie Universität Amsterdam. The podcast is created by our hosts, Julia Ranzini and Andreu Casas. Production team includes Yolanda Veldhuis and Marike van der Velde. Editing and outreach done by Teresa Rodriguez and Alessandro Perego. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to follow us on Twitter at Made Simplecast and Instagram at Made Simplecast as well to stay up to date.